electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I'll be my friends. I was trying to make you a little money. My job, not just to entertain, but to educate. Do some teaching. Call me, 1-800-743-CBC. Tweet me, at Jim Kramer. Another day, another softer economic number, another step closer to the Fed no longer being your enemy. After this cooler-than-expected consumer price index reading that we got at 8.30 a.m., it's now clear that Jay Powell, the Fed chief, is actually winning the war on inflation, which is why the Dow jumped 217 points today. S&P gained 0.34%, and the Nasdaq advanced another 0.64%. That was on the sixth straight month of better inflation numbers. So on the eve of earnings season, we can stop worrying about the big picture and talk about what makes individual stocks go higher. Why don't we start with the basics? Tomorrow we'll hear from most of the big banks. They'll unleash a slew of numbers. Most of them will be actually irrelevant to the stocks, but not all of them. What do we care about? Loan growth, defaults, how much money they're making off your deposits. They're paying you nothing. They're getting 3 4%. We'll see a set of headline numbers, the earnings, the revenues, the forecasts. It'll look simple, but it's never simple with the banks. And their numbers are often impacted by an amalgam of one-time considerations, which throws off our ability to make clean apples-to-apples comparisons with the analyst estimates. Now, most of the time, the bank stocks instantly go higher, or at least most bank stocks. And then we listen to the conference call, the tone, the refinement of the forecast, the question and answers. And then what happens? They give up their gains. Probably happen again tomorrow. We'll also be hearing from BlackRock's Larry Fink. Now, he's the man behind the biggest asset gather in the world. He is a titan and a great advocate of your rights, shareholders' rights, shareholder democracy. And that's something I'm going to be talking about with him tomorrow on Squawk in the Street, which brings me to what I really want to talk about tonight. Oh, I could give you a couple of NASDAQ stocks that are up. Everybody knows how to do that, right? Oh, hey, look at that semiconductor. No, I want to do a little more. I feel like doing a little more tonight. I want to talk about democracy in the case of the Walt Disney Company. First, let me tell you, Like anyone who bought Disney last year, I would say I'm plenty upset. 
and this is for my charitable trust. We've lost a lot of money on a situation that I felt very bullish about, and I was wrong. I've liked Disney forever, though. I've been to Disney World a dozen times. I brought my kids up on Disney movies. I can't live without ESPN. Disney stock is the first stock I recommended on Mad Money almost 18 years ago. So I'm neither a summer soldier nor a sunshine patriot. So when it comes to Disney's recent performance, believe me when I say that I am furious. This company has not done a good job. It's canceled its dividend. It's lost billions, squandering a stunning amount of shareholder money. Let me repeat. Shareholder money. Like my money. Or at least my trust. Like your money. You see, like other publicly traded companies, Disney's actually owned by the shareholders who give their trust to the CEO and the board of directors to do a great job with their money. And, well, at least that's supposed to how it works. But some chief executives don't seem to recognize that they're accountable to anyone. Some boards don't think so either. Now, that, you know, when I, I, that doesn't really bother me all that much when the stock's doing well, unless we discover some sort of, like, truly awful criminal enterprise. But when the stock's doing poorly... I think management loses that right to be treated with the congenial, hail fellow, well-met attitude that I have, that kind of Jeffersonian Gandhi thing I do. And when the company loses fortunes, like Disney did when they surprised us with $4 billion loss for its direct-to-consumer product last year, more than double the previous year's loss, you know what? I don't wear gloves, but I'd take them off if I had them on. I'm not going to just throw the towel and walk away. Management point blank has done a terrible job here. Bob Chapek, the CEO, was fired for his mismanagement, and the board brought in, brought back Bob Iger's predecessor, tried to restore order. They also named board member Mark Parker, the fantastic chairman and former CEO of Nike, as the new Disney chairman. Now, it's true that Disney's doing badly, but some of its problems had nothing to do with the deposed Chapek, who was picked by Iger in the first place. Remember, they spent $71 billion buying Fox's entertainment assets. That was a colossal overpay that ruined, ruined the balance sheet. The house of pain. Reckless use of shareholder money. Your money. My trust money. Sure, hindsight's 2020. Disney had wanted Fox to augment its new streaming service. But like a general manager who spends too much, way too much, on a single, <coughs> excuse me, on a single player, well, look at that. I missed the water. Um, Bob Iger needs to be held accountable. Believe me, if Disney were a football team, every ESPN analyst would say that whoever was involved with the Fox acquisition deserves to be fired. Something Disney should know because, well, they own most of ESPN. That's not cruel. I'm not being mean. Here's what I'm really doing. I am stating what I call facts. Those are facts. Then not long ago, with Disney stock trading not far from its lows, a well-known activist investor, a guy named Nelson Peltz, he took about a $900 million position to come in. It's not chump change. He, like every shareholder, was unhappy with the company's performance, didn't think the JPEG was doing a good job. Again, obvious. Peltz has to be put on the board to help the company perform better. In November, when JPEG was fired and Iger returned, many thought that Peltz would be appeased let Iger bring back the magic. The magic. Peltz wasn't appeased. Now he's going to be, now uh, he's, uh, let's say, going to be, uh, what, thrilled with the team that bought Fox? What he says was $30 billion more than what it was worth. He's supposed to like that? Now, here's what's key. Peltz runs a hedge fund, Triumph Partners. When Peltz joins the board of a Triumph position, as long as he's on the board, the company tends to outperform the S&P 500, 
by nine percentage points in any given year. Nine percentage points. The CEOs of the companies he has helped have given him glowing testimonials, even the ones like Heinz and Procter & Gamble, where he had waged proxy fights to get on the board. During the time he's been on the boards, he's helped increase investments to drive sales growth and market share performance, reduce cost and overhead, and optimize capital allocation decisions, all of which are things that Disney could use. Which is why I found it so confounding that Disney's board has given Pelts a definitive no, despite how poorly the company's performing. They gave him a token 45 minutes to make a presentation. Originally, it was only supposed to be 30 minutes. Peltz pleaded for another 15. And then shortly after, they said, no, thanks. We don't need you on our board. They told him he could observe things, kind of like auditing a class at college. But his $900 million skin in the game position seems to mean nothing to them, nor does his wisdom. I'm obviously actually trying to be as dispassionate as possible about this, but I don't understand why Disney wouldn't eagerly welcome basically free advice from someone with a tremendous track record when he's on the board. I've done my own reporting on this and found many directors who've served with him. They all say the same thing. He's thoughtful, helpful, not disruptive. If you're going to have an activist shareholder coming after you, Peltz is the one you want. So now lots of money, your money, if you're a shareholder, like my travel trust, will be spent to stop Nelson Peltz from joining the board. Boy, is that nuts. Even though he's not the guy who was involved with the disastrous Fox acquisition or the disastrous choice to make Bob Chapek the CEO. Sure, Disney will have its excuses, just like P&G did when they fought against Pelz. CEO even came on the show to campaign against him on their proxy contest. They tell you all sorts of stories about how it'll hurt the culture, disrupt the boardroom, whatever. But you know what? We're the shareholders, and the shareholders are the ones who own Disney. It's the board, the stewards, who haven't done a good job. Not the shareholders, and not Pelts. Now someone like Pelts, who's been tremendously success- successful, wants to join them. And they act like that's a problem? That is lunacy. Here's the bottom line. We're not talking about naming Dopey, or Sleepy, or Scrooge McDuck, one of my faves, or Pluto, or the Teacup, or the Sultan, or the Beast, or the Little Mermaid, to Disney's board. Talk about electing someone named Nelson Pels, who can and will help. Hopefully the existing board members who caused Disney to lose so much value won't prevail in arguing against taking it. Let's go to Ira in Texas. Ira. Yes, how you doing? Thanks for taking the call. You've always mentioned take companies that have good products and good services. Last week, your analysts talked favorable about healthcare management companies. What's your read on Teladoc? They're in that telemedicine space. Well, <coughs> excuse me, my problem with Teladoc is that they have not fulfilled, they made a really bad merger, frankly. And when they did that merger, that blew them up. <coughs> I don't want to touch it. I think there are a lot better ideas out there. Bob in Indiana, Bob. Hey, what's up, Jim? Not much, so, Bob. How about you? Pretty good. Just waiting to go into work. All right. Uh, so uh, I diversified my portfolio with uh, Mullen. I bought that around 19 cents. I sold out of Apple to get there. But with my Amazon, I sold out of there, and I bought roughly 750 shares at $1.60 approximately on Bed Bath & Beyond. And I'm deciding okay. whether or not if I should well, go here's ahead what I think you should do. Okay, site. look, here's what I think you should do. Bed Bath & Beyond has said that it's, uh, it's worried about being a going concern. What that means is that they could shut, they could close, they could sell. But the main thing you need to know is that you have a cost basis that you can take out. 
You like the restaurant, and that's fine with me. But I don't want you to lose money in this. This, this thing could go to zero, and you'll say, why didn't I take anything out? Take out your cost basis tomorrow, let the rest run, and see how you do, and I think you'll be fine. All right. Hopefully, the existing board members who caused Disney to lose so much value won't prevail in arguing against Nelson Peltz's help. On Mad Money tonight, Denbury is a handle on all things carbon capture. So could the stock be an under-the-radar green energy play that's also highly profitable? I'm talking to the CEO. Then over the last couple of months, a phenomenon has swept Wall Street. Former CEOs returning to right the ship. So what should you make of these high-profile power transfers? I'll give you my take. And could the latest COVID numbers out of China be a worry three years after COVID initially made it to our shores? I'm getting the latest from the one and only Dr. Eric Topol, and you won't like it. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. most prognosticators. I'm bullish on energy for 2023. The oil and gas stocks won't roar like they did last year, but if you identify the best individual stories in the group, you know what? You're going to do real good. With that in mind, I want to talk about Denbury. That's an independent oil producer that has a long history of using carbon dioxide to get crude out of the ground. 
a process they call enhanced soil recovery. And in recent years, they've used that expertise to make a huge push into something that they always use the initials for, which they didn't. Everybody does. Carbon capture, utilization, and storage, CCUS. The kind of technology that lets you use fossil fuels without flooding the environment with greenhouse emissions. There was a lot of money earmarked for carbon capture in last year's misleadingly named Inflation Reduction Act. Should have been called the Carbon Reduction Act. Now, all sorts of companies are, yeah, they're talking a big game. There's one that's really doing it. It's Denbury. And we've got to figure out how they're going to get this carbon footprint down. They're working, and others are going to need their help. Same time, because it's also an oil producer, this is a rare green energy play, highly profitable. Don't take it from me. Let's take in with pure joy, as far as I'm concerned, because I love energy. Chris Kendall, the presidency of Denbury, to get a better read on this story. Mr. Kendall, welcome back to Man Money. Thanks, Jim. Great to be here again. So, Chris, it seems like that some things are really happening. It seems like, for instance, you're starting to get your due for what you're doing, which is amazing. And even Washington's noticing. Absolutely, Jim. I think we are. You know, I think back on when uh, we first uh, visited uh, back in August uh, two years ago, we were just getting started. And and since then, uh, we have built this business uh, ended last year with uh, orders of about 20 million ton per year of, of emissions that'll be uh, captured and then transported and stored by Denbury. You know, I think about that in just the context of the world's uh, total captured emissions right now, which is about 40 million tons. We're making great progress. There's a long way to go, but we love where we are and we love where we're headed. Now, talk about what the in, the Inflation Reduction Act has done, because they've really put some pretty good pricing in that could really maybe get others to, to, to work with you to get things done. They really did, Jim. And, and it, it's been just a fantastic couple of years in terms of the whole panorama for carbon capture. We started with the, uh, the original 45Q tax credit, which, uh, which provided a $50 per ton tax credit for carbon captured and sequestered underground. That was great because that got us a great start with a bunch of low cost of capture industries like ammonia, methanol, ethanol, and so on. And, and so that's where we started and that's where we begin going down this path. What's really cool is that once we saw the IRA and we, we saw that $50 tax credit increase to $85 a ton. Now what that did, especially when you combine it with continued work to just reduce the cost of capture, is it brings a whole bunch of new industry into the money, say, in, in capturing their emissions. And these are industries with very hard to abate emissions like cement or steel or even power generation, which is uh, for us kind of the holy grail of getting to the meat of the huge amount of emissions that we have right here in the United States. So, so we're very to, excited about it. We think the door is just wide open for a very, very big industry well, and a big business. here. But at the same time, I want people to know this is not you are not some company that is an that is an ESG company that also produces energy. You are a huge cash flow. You're producing a lot of oil. And frankly, your model is very reasonable for others to emulate. You know, Jim, I think it really is. If you look back in our history, as you mentioned at the outset, we began with a focus on enhanced oil recovery using carbon dioxide. And what that resulted in is just this great set of experts in handling CO2 above and below ground. It resulted in these assets that are the greatest set of CO2 pipeline assets in the United States. 
moving 14 million tons of CO2 right now as we speak uh, every year. And so we, through that business, we built this uh, incredible expertise, incredible asset base. And what I love is just the absolute adjacency of carbon capture uh, to that EOR business. All of the expertise that we need to to work in CCUS is expertise that we developed uh, right there uh, working EOR. Well, so we have an ongoing business, we have good cash flows, and we can translate all of that to fund and build that CCUS. All right, business. so let's talk about for a moment. Uh, it can be idle and you can dismiss it, but there, there's a company, Exxon, that my partner David Faber did a tremendous takeout on. They are trying their best to be able to become cleaner, to decarbonize. The natural partner for them to do it is Denbury. You do work together. What do we say about this technology and maybe that Exxon needs to buy you in order to get it? Yeah, and you, you know, you mentioned that uh, when we when we talked a couple of August ago. And and certainly we think we have something very special, Jim. But when I step back a little bit and I look at what we need as a company, we have the assets, we have the people, we have a clean balance sheet with virtually no debt. And we have the ability to self-fund that $1.6 to $2 billion of CCUS CapEx that we think we'll need to build our business to where we expect it to be by the end of this decade. We can do all of that organically. So we, we feel very good about where we are. We're completely focused on building the value of this company uh, as, as we go forward, just as we have over the last couple of years. And that's where we're going to stay focused. Uh, oh. that's, that's kind of how I, how I think about it. You know? All right. Well, you know what? Look, we're going to have to we're going to have to stay focused because the Gulf Coast for you are is good. We even talk about all the companies that need you in order to be able to become better citizens. And then green, green you know, hydrogen has been such an important part of what we talk about. You guys take action on all of these. I want you to come back. I want you to come to New York. I want people to understand that Denbury deserves a lot more credit for what you're doing than people realize. I want to thank Chris Kendall, CEO of Denbury, Sybil DN. Chris, yes, just keep doing what you're doing. You are, you are, uh, let's just hope everybody emulates your work, okay? We're going to do it, Jim. Thank you so much. I believe you are. You're darn good stock, too. Man, money's back after the break. Coming up, just when you thought they were out, they pulled themselves back in. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. These CEOs all return to the corner office. What's it mean for their stocks? Next. Over the past few months, we've seen something a little unusual. In order to turn things around, 
A handful of companies have booted their CEOs and replaced them with former CEOs or founders. It's like Wall Street's taking a page from Poltergeist 2. They're back. By the way, that's a seminal set of horror movies if you're too young to have seen them. But even if you don't like retro movies, the business community clearly has a thing for retro executives. You know what? Almost a year ago now, we saw Howard Schultz come back as interim chairman of Starbucks after the departure of Kevin Johnson. Uh, Starbucks, as we tell Investing Club members, has a new CEO now, Laxman Narasimhan, and I think he's going to do a good job. I can't wait to spend some time with him. But Howard had to come back as interim CEO to get things the way it should be. Now, this retro CEO storyline has only become more germane of late. We've seen three separate companies, Disney, Stitch Fix, and World Wrestling Entertainment, be involved in just these kinds of reshufflings. Let's take them one by one, because these stories can tell us a lot about how you can create a comeback at a failing business. We'll start with Disney, because I'm a longtime fan of this one, to the point where we still want it for the Travel Trust, as you know from the top of the show. In late November, Disney ousted CEO Bob Chapek after less than three years in the job. They replaced him with his predecessor, Bob Hager, the guy who transformed the company into a true powerhouse during his original tenure from 2005 to 2020, but also made that terrible acquisition Fox. Now, i got to say, the worst mistake Iger ever made, though, was picking Chapek as a successor. We gave this guy so many chances. Sure, Chapek was dealt a tough hand given that he took over just as COVID exploded worldwide. But for his last 20 months, the CEO, the stock lost 55% of its value. And that was a good deal of it was because of his mismanagement. Chapek used to run the parks division. He was very good at that. But his skill set clearly didn't translate to the media side of the business, and that did matter. Chapek never really managed to put together a compelling narrative to own the stock. When he took over, Disney Plus had just, got, had just gotten going, and the stock quickly started trading like a streaming video play, which was terrific at the height of the pandemic. But, well, you know, it's been awful since the world went back to normal post-COVID. Even though Disney's theme parks were packed and posting great numbers, even though was, this company's got some of the best entertainment franchises in human history, at least in terms of earnings power, Chapek could never get investors to focus on the underlying value here because he couldn't bring it out. Now, the straw that broke the camera's back was that last conference conference call, holy cow, uh, in early November, when Disney reported awful numbers. But Chapek made it sound like everything was, well, I was going to say fine, but really fantastic, I think is the right word. Close watchers of the show know I had high hopes for Chapek, but now I'm glad he's gone, and I'm glad they brought Iger in his replacement, because this is a Hollywood company, and he understands Hollywood better than anybody. Of course, Iger's not infallible. He picked a bad successor, and almost as bad, as I mentioned, he massively overpaid for 21st Century Fox Entertainment assets, loading Disney's balance sheet up with a massive amount of debt, and only forcing them to suspend the dividend indefinitely. This was a long-time dividend payer. And like I mentioned at the top of the show yesterday, acclaimed activist investor Nelson Peltz launched a formal campaign for a board seat here. I'm dismayed that Disney's fighting this, but hopefully Peltz will win because he's one of the most reliable activists in the business. But we spent nearly half an hour talking to him this morning on Squawk on the Street. I thought he had a compelling vision for some of the things that need to be asked about. Again, he's got a great track record of unlocking value whenever he gets on the board. I think Peltz and Iger can make a terrific team if only Iger would get on board with the idea. Clearly, a lot of people agree with me because Disney stock jumped three and a half bucks today, and I bet it's got more room to run as long as Peltz gets on that board. Next up is Stitch Fix seems to be following the same playbook. Last Friday, the online fashion advisory service announced that its CEO, Elizabeth Spalding, would be stepping down. But Katrina Lake, the founder, chairperson, and original CEO, and person who's been on the show a bunch of times, taking the helm in an interim capacity. Just like Disney, this movie move seems to be all about performance, 
or more accurately, underperformance. Because Citrix became a real dog under Spalding's tenure. Now, look again, a great deal of that's because this kind of a high-flying digital shopping play was a huge COVID winner that went totally out of style when the Fed declared war on inflation. Let me put it this way. When Katrina Lake announced she was stepping down in April of last year, the stock was in the 50s. Well, now, now it's at $4. And that's after bouncing hard over the past couple of weeks. I got nothing against Spalding. I liked her when she was on the show. But under her leadership, Stitch Fix profitability plummeted. When this thing initially came public in 2017, it was profitable. By the 2022 fiscal year, which ended last July, they lost a buck ninety per share. Now, there's some context here. Stitch Fix spent a fortune to expand from its core subscription offering, where you pay a monthly fee and get sent a box of clothes, into more of a classic online retail experience, but with personalized product recommendations. That kind of expansion is very expensive. Unfortunately, it came at a worst possible time because as of last year, Wall Street no longer wanted to invest in unprofitable companies that are spending heavily to invest in growth, especially e-commerce growth. Plus, with the launch of the retail business, Stitch Fix seemed to focus, uh, seemed to focus on the numbers for their core subscription offerings started slipping. The subscriber count peaked a year ago. Worst of all, Stitch Fix has gone from pretty reliable operator to the exact opposite. They've missed sales estimates for three quarters straight. Again, a lot of this is timing. E-commerce cohort got killed. But can Katrina, can she turn it around? Look, Stitch Fix is predicted to lose money for the foreseeable future. It is hard to call the stock cheap even here, down 96% from its highs. But at this point, the $478 million market capitalization is so low that it's tempting. The company has more than $100 million in cash and cash equivalent, zero debt. I think Blake can potentially sell the business to a larger retailer, maybe a private equity firm. But I wouldn't want to stick my neck out on Stitch Fix until they stabilize the core subscription business. The stock's just too speculative in an environment where speculation is going out of style. I will t- tell you personally, when I first met Katrina, she told me, do you know how much money the company's making? I thought it was losing money. I was wrong. I mean, it was an informal situation. She was telling me about what the company was doing. And you know what? What the heck was I thinking? She's a great operator. I think even having her back in an interim way could be terrific for shareholders. Finally, last Thursday night, we learned that Vince McMahon, the former CEO of World Wrestling Entertainment, who's owned a controlling stake in the business since the early 80s, would be returning to the company and possibly pursuing a sale of the business. This one raises eyebrows because McMahon technically retired last summer after some serious sexual misconduct allegations. But he never really left. He's the owner who shares with most of the voting power. He brought in his daughter to run the show. But two days ago, WWE confirmed that he's coming back and McMahon took the executive chairman spot with the CEO title going to Nick Khan, who had been serving as co-CEO alongside McMahon's daughter. We've heard a lot of speculation about who might be willing to buy this one, although my squawk on the street compadre David Faber reports some serious cold water on these reports. My view, I don't want to go near the thing, and not just because the stock's already up 24% since the news broke. But you know what? I see it happening. And this is, uh, let's see. So we got Starbucks, we got Disney, we got Stitch Fix, we got WWE. And I'm calling it a trend. Here's the bottom line. After a difficult period for the market, some companies are bringing back their old leaders to turn things around. But other than Bob Iger or Disney, I'm not sanguine yet about this strategy. Let's take some phone calls. Let's go to William in Michigan. William. Hi, Jim. Thank you for taking my call. Of course. This stock is well off its highs. Many consider the company to be the leader and best of breed in the industry. Given the current macroeconomic conditions, I would like your opinion on Palo Alto Networks. 
I think Palo Alto Networks is a buy. Now, we're starting to see some serious downgrades in the group. We saw some uh, a trim in Zscaler. We saw some outright downgrade in Sentinel-1. This is going to be the, this is the cream of the crop. Uh, and the cashier is the best CEO in that business. I say you buy Palo Alto Networks. Now let's go to Clay in Kentucky. Clay. Jim, I'm a member of the Investment Club, and I always appreciate your insight. Coming into the new oh, year, thanks. I was thinking about adding it to my position in Humana. But I understand that uh, there may be some Fed changes that could negatively impact the stock. What are your thoughts? No, no, no. You buy Humana. This stock is part of a rotation. They actually pre-announced unbelievably good numbers when they were in San Francisco earlier this week. The trust owns it. As you know, thank you. We mentioned it. I also talked about it in our in our home stretch uh, a little bit after 2.30, that I think Humana represents the best buy. We'll see United Healthcare tomorrow. I bet you it'll be good. And Humana is the one that's now the cheapest. After a difficult period for the market, some companies are bringing back their old leaders to turn things around. But other than Bob Iger, well, I'm not too sanguine about this strategy, unless, of course, we do want to include Starbucks, which is from more, well, almost a year ago. Now, much more mad money at, including my exclusive with Dr. Eric Topol. Could an explosion of new COVID cases in China be cause for concern? Are we just whistling past the graveyard again? I'm going straight to the source for answers. Then I'm not buying that CPI number we got this morning, but why? I'll reveal exactly, and I'm telling you, I'm a little more rigorous than they are over at the Labor Department. And order calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. At this point, nearly three years after the pandemic reached our shores, we're more or less back to normal. Sure, we haven't eradicated COVID, but thanks to effective vaccines, widespread testing, multiple treatments, the virus is much less lethal. That said, there's a lingering threat here. Late last year, China shifted from its draconian zero COVID strategy to what I would say is a more laissez-faire anything-goes strategy, resulting in an explosion of new infections. Remember, the Chinese government insists on using homegrown vaccines that are much less effective than the mRNA vaccines from Pfizer or Moderna, so it's spreading like crazy. Now we have to worry about new variants showing up, especially because China hasn't exactly been forthcoming with information about the virus. How worried should we be? Well, let's catch up with Dr. Eric Tobey. He's the well, world-renowned cardiologist turned founder and director of the Scripps Translational Institute. He's also a great friend of the show, who's become our most trusted source on COVID and many other health issues. Dr. Tobey, welcome back to Med Money. Thanks so much, Jim. Great to be with you again. All right. So, Doc, I read uh, your opinion piece. That's why I wanted you on January 8th in the Washington Post. And it's entitled, The Coronavirus is Speaking. It's saying it's not done with us. I had others read this. They all said the same thing to me. Jim, you're a worry war, you're a chicken little guy. And you know what? I remember I was in Milan in the last week of January in 2020. And I came home and I told everyone about this thing. No one believed me. I feel this article could be a clarion call that once again we're whistling past, maybe not the biggest graveyard like we had, but something very important. Yeah, the virus is relentless. And even though we're tired, Jim, it keeps finding new ways to hurt us. So the latest version is a fusion of two different variants, the so-called XBB, and then two mutations on top of that that was discovered, first detected in New York. And it spread really fast throughout the Northeast and led to a pretty substantial wave of seniors getting COVID hospitalizations. It's probably going to become dominant throughout the country in the weeks ahead. So we have the first American-born 
major variant here. Uh, it unfortunately has a funky name, XBB.1.5, but it's not a good one. And it just shows us where the virus can go in such different ways that we would not have predicted to cause trouble. All right. Well, uh, I was in a medical building today. We're all wearing masks. I will go home tonight and I will test. I've mentioned this to other people. They laughed. When are we going to realize that it's around? And even if you've been fully vaccinated, there's a good chance that you could get this thing. Right. Well, the vaccinations, unfortunately, ever since Omicron a year ago, don't do very well and certainly only short term to help block infections. So you're absolutely right. The only way you're going to know what you when you've got exposed or when you're gathering, uh, the tests do help. The rapid tests help uh, to get a sense of what's going on. But, yeah, our vaccines, they are really holding up well against uh, the severe COVID hospitalizations and deaths. But as of a year ago, the infection protection is really quite minimal. And so we have to keep that in mind. Uh, and the bivalent vaccine that was rolled out in September uh, actually has done much better than we expected because it helps protect against this XBB15 that we're dealing with right now. Uh, and that wasn't anticipated. That wasn't what the, the bivalent was directed to. So we got to use all the stuff we have, including the bivalent booster, uh, the mask when we when we have high circulating virus, the testing, as you've mentioned, we've got a lot of things in our armamentarium to work with. All right. So, Doug, we've got a country, one point four billion people that had an irrational policy about zero covid and then went equally irrational and said, go see the world. Uh, a plane lands in Milan. Fifty percent of the people have covid. The variants of this petri dish of a country must concern you. And their ability to go anywhere with minimal restrictions must have you very worried. Well, whenever you don't contain the virus, that's certainly the potential sequela. And we've got an American variant now uh, because of that uh, issue. So, yes, in China, with that massive population and really unmitigated spread at this point, uh, they just weren't able to get the, the, the population vaccinated, particularly people of advanced age. As you mentioned at the top, the vaccines aren't working particularly well against these Omicron variants, uh, as are the boosters that they have. So they're in a tough position. They were draconian because they didn't have facilities to match up with uh, if, if COVID really spread. But now they're really seeing it and it's taking its toll and it's going to continue for for many weeks ahead. All right. So one last thing. You, if you haven't gotten that booster from September and you're watching this show, how about you go tomorrow to the drugstore and get it? I sure think that would be a great idea, especially if you're older, 50 plus, certainly 65 plus. It, would, it gives you a lot more protection. Our immune system, as we get older, just doesn't do as well. And that booster, particularly the bivalent, is a big uh, jump in your immune response to have neutralizing antibodies against the variants that we're seeing now, not just the ones that it was designed for. Well, I'm so good you came on, Doc. I think people are way too complacent. If it weren't for you, I think a lot of people would have gotten far more sick and we would have saved more lives had people listened to you from the beginning. Dr. Eric Topol, founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute and also a great friend of the show. Thank you, Doc. Great to have you on. Thanks so much, Jim. Thanks for staying with us, too. Absolutely. And money's back in. Coming up, Kramer wants to hear from you. Your calls on the thunderous lightning round. Next. 
And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Steve? Dad, have the lightning round quivers, buddy. Let's start with Galen in Illinois. Galen. Hey, Jim. How you doing, sir? I I am doing great. How about you? Pretty good. Just kind of hanging out here in Lewistown, Illinois. Um, well, that sounds like a great place opinion. to be. What's up? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a good place. Um, what's your opinion on Rivian stock? What direction do you think this is going in the short term, up or down? Okay. What do you think? Uh, Rivian, I got to remember, we're against those companies that we're against the money losers, and we can't change our mind now. We just don't know what's going to happen. We're staying away from the losers. Let's go to Phil in California. Phil. Hey there, Jim. Uh, gratitude, kudos, and appreciation for your work, and the depth of your analysis is getting deeper and better. Oh, I gotta uh, work even harder, I tell you. I really do. Sometimes I get discouraged with so many improving new companies. Trade. That's the, the All right, truth. thank you. Um, high-yielding Israeli shipping company called Zim, Z is in Zebra, now, I is I've been in actually daddling that one for about 35 points, and a lot of people said, Jim, you're keeping me out of a good one. I'm going to reiterate, I don't trust it, and I've been right so far. Let's go to David in South Carolina. David! Jim, thank you so much for taking my call. It's an honor to be here and a privilege to say booyah to the Jimmy Chill. Booyah, but the Chill says back. What's up? Let's go. I just want to say I'm a founding club member, and uh, you know I really appreciate all your insights. So grateful for it. Jesse, thank you. We got that. Ten, hey, do you like the two o'clock home stretch? How about that thing, huh? That's coming together. I love it. I love it. Yeah. It's all great. right. So let's go to work. Today's call. Yeah, today's call is about a fertilizer company. So with the war in Ukraine and Russia over the past year, you know, a huge supply of fertilizer, wheat, et cetera, has been lost right. to the world economy. One third. One third gonna, of it. Yeah. I mean, are we going to see... Yeah, that's why I like... like go, which one? Which one do you, you want to know about? CF Industries. Just, I want to see if it's going to take off with uh, demand. I like CF. I like Bosant more. I like Bosant more, but I like CF a lot. Let's go to Steve in Minnesota. Steve. Hi, Jim. Long-time viewer, first-time caller. Wanted to thank you Excellent. for all your wisdom and expertise ah, that thank you, you very so much. humbly thank share you. with us. Uh, my question you. has to do with uh, supplier of the semiconductor industries. Uh, with the CHIPS Act recently passed and the manufacturer set for large capital investments, what do you think about the company Integris? Ticker ENTG. I like Integris. It's very out of favor. It's got a little too high multiple, but it does a lot of nuts and bolts that you need to make semis. So that's okay by me. I'm in, I'm good with it. Let's go to Joe in New Jersey. Joe. Hello, Mr. Kramer. Thank you for joining us. Joe, what's call. up? Absolutely. Uh, I see that the healthcare products and service provider Henry Shine is off of its highs. Is it a buy? I like the company. It's very plain vanilla. Nothing really exciting about it, but that's okay. We don't want to. You know, we're not in this business in order to have, for excitement. We're in for consistency. And Henry Shine's had a pretty consistent view. Uh, they deliver. They deliver. Let's go to Tom in Texas. Tom. Yes, Jim. Been watching you since. You there? I've been watching you since the Cudlow days. The first time. Holy cow! So Larry Tate looks real good. <laughs> What's going on? Uh, you highlighted Clearfield a, a little while ago. Uh, uh, the chart's kind of weak, so a fall back into the 80s yesterday didn't take me by surprise. But uh, but against the broad, uh, the general background of the market uh, the last two days was kind of a, 
uh, surprised by the depth of the fall into yeah, you know what? I feel like I know this sounds really like a cop out, Tom. I think somebody knows something. I see these things, and lately, since this year began, when you see a stock go down, you got to be very careful. We have to wait and see. We can't catch a falling knife when there's so many stocks that are doing well. You have to stay away from the stocks that are plummeting. Let's go to Isaac in Indiana. Isaac. Hey, how you doing, Mr. Kramer? Uh, Mr. Kramer's doing fine. How about you? All right. Hey, so do you think Steel Dynamics, STLD, is worth a buy? I like Steel Dynamics, but I love Nucor. Nucor's been dead right, and that's the one you want to pull the trigger on even tomorrow. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up... A key economic indicator is out. Why isn't Kramer buying the number? Find out next. And then you get a big number that's simply not credible. That's how I feel about today's cooler than expected CPI reading. To me, these percentages either make no sense or are clearly out of date. Don't get me wrong. I'm glad to see the consumer price index going down. We need to win the fight against inflation. So it's encouraging to see the CPI down 0.1% month over month in December or up just 6.5% year over year. That's a big deceleration from a few months ago. So what's the problem? Simple. I actually think this number is way too high, and inflation is running much lower than it indicates. We know the Labor Department gives you two sets of figures, the ones I mentioned, and the core numbers that exclude food and energy, which rose 0.3% in December. When you look at the underlying percentages, though, some of them are very hard to swallow. The Labor Department says there was a 4.5% decline in energy costs month over month, yet natural gas, which happens to be the principal way people heat their homes in this country, was down 35% from the end of November to the end of last, summer, last month. That's a crash. This is something that meaningfully lowers the cost of day-to-day life. Gasoline was down 9.4% month over month. That headline energy decline should be a lot bigger. Shelter's a big loser in the CPI, moving up 0.8% from the previous month. And I question that, too, based on real data from boots-on-the-ground companies, so to speak. Last night, KB Homes, a large national home builder, reported and they're seeing dramatic declines in housing prices in some of the hottest regions, the ones we're most worried about when it comes to inflation. Austin had been the hottest in the country, but competitors are now cutting prices by 60, 70 grand. The average price for a KB home is about a half a million bucks, so that's significant. Phoenix, been real hot. The prices have come down about 30 grand. Raleigh, North Carolina, huge influx of people from the north. Yet those prices are being reduced by 30 grand. Florida, the destination of choice for people fleeing high taxes in other states. But Orlando's prices are coming down by 60 to 70 grand. There's even discounting in Southern California's Inland Empire, which has been, once again, like in 2007, incredibly hot. So if all the hottest housing markets are seeing big price cuts, how the heck was the cost of shelter up 0.8% last month? But the craziest item in the CPI report is apparel up 0.5%. Come on, Labor Department, get digitized. Right now, we're looking at one of the largest apparel gluts I've ever seen. And I come from a retail background with two parents who worked at department stores. You can walk down any of the discounters, TJ Maxx, Burlington, Ross Stores, and see all the most expensive clothes for a fraction of what you pay for them at the major chains. 
Why? Because the major chains had to dump this stuff on the discounters in order to make room for new merchandise. Oh, and let's not forget the miss by Macy's last Friday, where they had discount had the discount apparel. But above all, let's listen. Think about this. 200 million people shop at Walmart, and there are more than 120 million cardholders at Costco. Both places keep prices down below where you can get the merchandise anywhere else. In short, apparel, it's a disaster. (laughs) That the plus 0.5% increase is so off the mark is laughable. I can go on and on about how wrong these numbers are, but what matters is the vast preponderance of these CPI components are way too high versus what I'm hearing from individual companies that can give us cold, hard cash numbers. Those real numbers speak for themselves, and they're about to be real loud as earnings season gets rolling. Long story short, inflation's coming down, coming down hard. I just wish Jay Powell had the real numbers I just gave him. Because based on the reality, I think it'd be crazy for the Fed to hit us with anything more than 25 basis point rate hike at the next meeting. And if we get any progress in wage inflation after that, there's honestly no reason for the Fed to keep tightening at all. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 